So you have the absurdity of a government minister who stands at a dispatch box, as the minister will at third reading, and if you say to him, if on behalf of the public, you say, here is a burning question amongst many people in the public. Is Wikipedia going to survive this bill? Will, will Welsh Wikipedia survive this bill? And will end-to-end -end encryption continue after this bill? And he'll say, do you know, I have no idea, it's all down to Ofcom. Well, what's the point of being a government? It's, it's absolutely astonishing that the government can take that attitude. Nothing to do with us. Yes, it is. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Conservative peer Daniel Moylan. Lord Moylan raises concerns about the online safety bill due to be passed into law this year. Messaging companies Signal and WhatsApp have already suggested they may leave the UK if this happens. Because the government will say, oh, we've abolished WhatsApp, but it wasn't ours. You see, nothing to do with the government. It's a totally independent body called Ofcom, and we can't possibly interfere in what they're doing. Well, that is a hopeless setup for um, in a democratic society. He says the new law would see a shift of power and responsibility from an elected government to a regulator. Ofcom is going to be the, the granddaddy, the queen, the kick-ass queen of regulators. Mm. Well, what, are the, what are the dangers of, of taking that approach? Well, the dangers are the lack of complete lack of accountability. We, we know that. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Lord Moylan, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. We're talking about the online safety bill. The government has said this will protect adults and children and that it will make the social media companies more responsible for their users' safety. I mean, that sounds great. There's considerable opposition to this bill, including from yourself. Could you talk us through the bill and, and what your concerns are? Well, just to make a slight correction at the outset, I think what the government is saying is that it aims to protect children and vulnerable adults. It's not seeking to protect adults in general. And you and I might agree that adults um, who are of sound mind and ability um, shouldn't need protecting. Um, they can make choices about what they view and what they follow on the internet. Um, the difficulty of the bill, there are a number of difficulties, but one of the difficulties of the bill is it is very difficult to distinguish between children and vulnerable adults on the one hand and the rest of the community on the other. Um, and there's also a very good question, what is meant by vulnerable adults and why vulnerable adults should be included anyway? We understand generally in life, that children do need protecting because they can't make choices of their own. But what do we mean by vulnerable adults? And, and, and that category of vulnerable adults can be infinitely expanded, if you like, to include all adults. And that's essentially what's happened in the bill. In fact, there's one proud supporter of the bill, Lady Benjamin, on the Liberal Democrat benches, who has said repeatedly that childhood lasts a lifetime. That's her view. So we're really, we're all children, as far as Lady Benjamin is concerned. There are no adults. Um, um, and that's the way the bill has, has rather worked out. The, the, the desire 
to take a case of a child who has been exposed to material that encourages suicide, self-harm, um, eating disorders, anorexia, things like that. The, the, to take a child and to find some way of making it an offence to show that sort of material to a person under the age of 16 or 18, whatever age you choose, is something that we can all agree is a very laudable objective. And it's made worse by the fact that the, some of the big sites operate in a way whereby the algorithms repeat and intensify um, transmission and exposure to material that you've identified. I mean, you go ahead in a simple way. I do myself. I bought a, on Amazon, I bought a book on Scottish history recently. Um, I, since then, I've been bombarded with books about Scottish history. They think it's all I want to know about. Well, I'm, one book on Scottish history is probably fine and enough. I don't know that I need, you know, the number that they're trying to sell to me. And it's, it's also the case that if you go on, you show an interest in some of these platforms in material about anorexia or even suicide and self-harm, the, the algorithms um, send you more and more stuff of that character. That has to stop. That, that, that is something, especially when it's directed at, at, at children, that is something which should absolutely stop. But it should be possible to do that, in my view, as I said at my own second reading speech, by a criminal law procedure which made it an offence to, ex to, ex to expose to a show to a child or to allow a child to see material of a certain character, which you then specify in a schedule, and, and to prohibit the use of these algorithms in uh, cases where they're targeted or marketed at children. And you make it a criminal offence, uh, in my view, and if the companies don't do it, you take criminal proceedings against them. And that, in a sense, would be my way of addressing the issue. But that isn't the approach taken by the government. And here I want to mention, um, if I may, what I regard as a sort of endemic structural flaw in the way in which we legislate nowadays. Because especially since the 1990s and, and intensely um, under Tony Blair's government, the idea has gro grown up that we should live in, all, in many aspects of our life, not under the law, but under a regulator. Now, if you live under the law, then what you do is tested in the courts. And we generally have confidence in the courts that we're going to be treated impartially and fairly. But if you are going to have decisions made for you by a regulator, and we have all sorts of sectors of the economy now that sit under a regulator, the regulators are deliberately created to be what they call independent. That means unaccountable. That means they're, they're not accountable to the public uh, in, in the same democratic way that lawmakers are accountable to the public in the commons. And so um, you end up with a system whereby Parliament says, we've got all these big decisions to make, um, but all we're going to do is we'll set up a, a regulatory framework. We won't make the decisions. And then we'll give the decisions to the regulator. Now, the regulator in the case of this bill is Ofcom, which has no experience of regulating the internet. Of course, it regulates the telephone companies and so on. 
But they have, they've manned up hugely and employed lots of people, even before the bill is passed. So they can take on this new role, which they must be relishing, because they'll be one of the most important regulators in the country, if, if not in Europe. Um, but who is actually holding them to account when they make these decisions? And um, that, is another, that has a structural flaw in the whole bill, because the government will say, um, oh, we've abolished WhatsApp, but it wasn't ours. You see, nothing to do with the government. It's a totally independent body called Ofcom, and we can't possibly interfere in what they're doing. Well, that is a hopeless setup for, um, in a democratic society. So an awful lot of the questions you might want to ask me about how will the bill operate in detail, all I'll be able to say to you is, well, it'll be all up to Ofcom. Right, right. We don't know how it's going to operate in detail. But when Ofcom makes those decisions, there's no point looking at me to try and get them fixed for you because they'll be independent and unaccountable. It's mad and totally offensive to democratic principles. One of the concerns with this bill is this clause of scanning people's private messages. I guess they'll be checked against a database somehow to see if there's certain key words in them. And this is Big Brother kind of uh, in an extreme, isn't it? Well, it's a little bit more subtle than that <clears throat> because it doesn't say that that is going to happen. Right. It says that Ofcom has the power to require the platforms to scan public and private, which includes WhatsApp and iMessage mm. and Signal, public and private um, messaging systems. It says Ofcom has the power to require them to develop a technology which will do this. Now, the technologies exist already, but they're not compatible with end-to-end -end encryption, right. which exists at the moment. There are essentially two different ways of doing it. One is that you type something on your phone, and the phone contains a piece of software which checks what you've done, or more likely it's a photo you've uploaded. So, you know, is it? They're particularly looking for, in this case, they're looking for what's called CSEA, Trial Sexual Exploitation and Abuse material. So you upload a picture, and the, the scanning device, this is called client-side scanning, the scanning on your phone would say, no, 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 I can't send that, can't send that. A lot depends on how effective that is and how it works, uh, whether it identifies, whether it can distinguish between genuinely offensive or illegal material on the one hand and family snaps on the other. I don't know. Um, the other is that you have some spy-in-the-sky type system which is looking in as it, through the transmission as it goes from one phone to another trying to stop some stuff. But both of them are incompatible with end-to-end -end encryption because they create doorways into the encrypted system which people can, other people, sometimes hostile state actors and so on, if, if there is a hole, people will get through it and they'll be able to see what's happening. So it will no longer have the protection of end-to-end -end encryption. And WhatsApp have said that they're going to leave, close down in the UK if this is done because they don't think this technology can be, re that they are required to produce a technology that can do this, but they don't think it can be done in a way that 
So if they are required, they'll leave. Um, and Signal and people like that have said they'll leave the UK. But of course, that doesn't mean to say they're going to leave the UK the day the bill passes. Um, uh, they may, but I don't think they're saying that. I think they're saying we would leave it if Ofcom required us to do this. But then, is Ofcom going to require you to do it if, if it means they're going to leave the country? And nobody knows. What's the politics of this? How are these decisions made? All you know is that these decisions will be made behind a veil. They will not be made by publicly accountable characters sitting in the House of Commons, government ministers, um, in a way that is accountable to the public. They'll be made behind closed doors between a regulator and a platform provider. And it depends how far Ofcom chooses to push. But there's no way to run a country. We know from uh, recent media uh, events that politicians use WhatsApp. And one would assume that they like that their messages are encrypted when they're sent to one another. And the Times said that the British military used Signal, and that Ukraine also used Signal to communicate with allies. So this, this backdoor in, in the bill that um, de-encrypts the messages or provides access to the messages, it will weaken our national security and, and do the same to other Western nations. Why aren't more lawmakers doing what you're doing and standing up to the bill? Well, it isn't simply messaging that is valuably protected by end-to-end -end encryption. But of course, as I understand, I don't claim to be a great internet expert. Uh, as I understand it, if you do a payment online, um, you know, you often, it comes up, you know, we are now transferring you to your credit card. You know, and you go over to um, a system which approves your credit card payment. Sometimes you have to get a text message with a, an OTP that you put in. With my credit card, you do anyway. Um, and so on. My understanding is that is an encrypted system. Mm. Now, I, I can't imagine Ofcom saying you've got to scan that. But the, the, the techniques that are used are techniques that people can learn from. Right. And, and you never know how this might spread into the world of financial fraud and scamming as well. Um, I can't tell you why more people aren't standing up, because I can only really speak for the House of Lords. Um, the bill has a long history that goes back to Mrs. May. Um, there have been a number of secretaries of state over time responsible for it who keep changing. and so they've had different views on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, the people in the House of Lords who are pushing for it, apart from the government, and by the way, the Labour Party opposition is pretty supportive of the bill as well, in principle. Some details they'd like to see changed, but they're very much keen to get it on the statute book. They're not opposing the bill uh, in, as a matter of principle. <coughs> the people pushing for it <coughs> Um, <clears throat> seem to believe uh, the platforms are really quite sort of evil and out of control and have allowed a thoroughly toxic atmosphere to be created on the internet. And that it doesn't matter what threats they make about pulling out. They don't mean it. They're only in it for the money. They won't pull out if it makes them money. Um, and even if they did so to speak, good riddance to them. 
because <clears throat> the internet, Lord, Lord Bethel, who is one of, the, one of my colleagues who supports the bill, um, did a, a tweet the other day saying, uh, you know, I just don't believe these people, more, I'm not summarizing, but saying, you know, we, we put up with all this blather from the platforms, but does that mean um, we listen to it? But do, should we give in to it uh, if it means the internet has become totally toxic? Should, surely we've got to draw a line and stop it. Um, and I understand that sentiment, but the cost of doing so in terms of freedom of expression, in terms of <clears throat> encryption, but also the, the overspill into other parts of the internet that really aren't a problem, but are all being dragged into this net. So, for example, one person in the industry described this bill to me as a Twitter-shaped bill. It's sort of designed for Twitter. But you've got lots of other really important features on the internet, like Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia is not generally thought of as a problem on the internet. I mean, I know that people fiddle about with some biographies and fill them with lies and so on. Um, but generally, on mainstream, mainstream language, into, uh, Wikipedia, like English, there are people who go in and correct them, and, and there is a monitoring process. I'm not aware of Wikipedia being used for um, disseminating illegal material or child sexual exploitation and abuse material um, and so on. It's a very valuable resource. I, I use Wikipedia all the time. Um, whether it's right or wrong, I tend to treat it as gospel. It's rather, maybe rather foolish of me, but I do. I use it all the time. Um, now, Wikipedia is in serious difficulties about parts of this bill because they're being dragged into its scope in a way that would mean they would have to check stuff before it went up on the site. Now, that isn't how Wikipedia works at the moment. There's a lot of pages. There's a lot of pages. People who have an authorization go on, they put stuff on the site, and then later moderators who work for Wikipedia come along and they just check it's okay and might correct it or add some notes to it or whatever, saying, you know, this isn't properly sourced or there's no reason for us to believe this or whatever. They do that. But that wouldn't be the case. They'd have to check everything in advance. Now, Wikipedia, just the burden on Wikipedia of doing this, it completely reverses their business model. And it makes it almost impossible for them to do it. Now, they probably manage it for a major site like the English language site, but it would have a hugely detrimental effect on the minority languages site. So Welsh Wikipedia, for example, which is the largest Welsh language um, internet site in the world, uh, I'm told. Uh, Welsh Wikipedia, they say, they just couldn't, we don't have right. enough Welsh speakers to, and how can we employ them for a site which is, although it's very large in terms of the Welsh language, is in many ways quite a small site because of the number of Welsh speakers not being as large as the number of English speakers and Spanish speakers and so on. Um, so we just can't do it. We couldn't comply with the law that way. And, and, and then the government says, the minister says at the dispatch box, in, when I make these points, he says, do you know, I'm not sure that Wikipedia would even be covered by the Act. I'd say, well, that's very interesting. Are you willing to give a commitment it won't be covered by the Act? Because that would be all right. Then we could amend the Act so that Wikipedia is not part of it. Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. 
It'll, when I say I don't think it'll be covered, I mean, I don't think Ofcom will include it. Oh, so it's all Ofcom. Why don't we have an amendment, I say, that tells Ofcom Wikipedia is not included? Oh, we can't do that. We can't tell Ofcom what to do. And I said, the whole bill is telling Ofcom what to do. But no, 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 that would interfere with their independent choice. So you have the absurdity of a government minister who stands at a dispatch box, as the minister will at third reading, and if you say to him, if on behalf of the public, you say, here is a burning question amongst many people in the public. Is Wikipedia going to survive this bill? Will, will Welsh Wikipedia survive this bill? And will end-to-end -end encryption continue after this bill? And he'll say, do you know, I have no idea. It's all down to Ofcom. Well, what's the point of being a government? It, it, it's, it, it's absolutely astonishing that the government can take that attitude. Nothing to do with us. Yes, it is. It is entirely to do with you, and you're asking us to vote for this bill, to create this system, and then you're saying somehow you don't have any moral responsibility for the outcome. It's absolute madness. A big tech has infiltrated our lives in ways we, we could never have imagined, really. Is this a, a well-intended but clumsy attempt to take back control? Yes, I, I'm perfectly happy to say that the intentions of the people who are concerned about um, what I mentioned a little earlier, which is certainly child sexual exploitation and abuse, but also the sorts of material that encourage self-harm and uh, eating disorders and uh, suicide, um, and the need, the imperative need, which I agree on, to protect children from seeing that material as far as possible. I certainly think those people are extremely well-intentioned, and I certainly think that something should be done. What I don't think is that this bill, which then goes out and seeks to regulate the entire internet, is a, a, is a proportionate or effective answer to that particular problem. So yes, it is in a sense it is, you could say we are trying to take back control of the internet. But again, at the second reading, which was quite some time ago, it was back in June or July, we've been on this bill for months. It was more than that, it was back in May or June or July, when we had our first debate on it, the second reading debate, and when I spoke then. Um, I said it does remind me a little bit of um, you know, we're here today, I said a little bit like a, a, a meeting of medieval clergymen trying to work out how to mitigate the harm from the invention of printing. Um, yeah, you can certainly sit down and say, how are we going to regulate printing? We need to keep control of printing. But it gets out of, from under you um, quite quickly. However you try to control it, it'll get out from under you, the printed word. And that's what people found. And it, of course, it's very much the same with the internet, because determined and skillful people, and I'm not one of them, I don't even know what a VPN network is, to be frank. But you know, one hears about VPN networks and other types of ways of going around, anonymously, around um, restrictions that are placed so that you can create an account which appears to be in a different country um, and, say, America.
and um, can access the internet that way, still in your home, just as you want to. So as far as I understand, there are ways already in which you can navigate around the bill. But I would say that even if there weren't, human inventiveness, as we know from printing, human ingenuity means that people will find ways, even if they are smuggling, you know, smuggling pamphlets in their underwear or whatever they were doing in the, in the 15th and 16th, in the 16th century, um, people will find a way of getting um, round systems that they feel are unduly restricting them. Um, and there's nothing in the bill that would stop them doing that. So nothing in the bill criminalizes an individual for using the internet. I mean, there are already other penalties for people who have um, uh, child sexual material on their computers. That would still be there, but that's not in this bill. That exists already. That nobody's trying to change that. But nobody is saying, oh, it's a criminal offense to use a VPN to go around or to use some system to avoid this. I mean, messages obviously can be used for nefarious means. Yes. As could the postal service, as could a telephone. Yes. That doesn't mean we want the government to mandate some kind of way of reading our mail or listening to our calls. But we do have a way of allowing the government to read our mail and our calls um, already. But it involves the protection of needing a warrant. And it is relatively a warrant from a court. And it is, I imagine, relatively rare. But it is true that the police, um, and these are properly constituted police authorities, police bodies, um, can get permission from a court to open your mail and can get permission to tap your telephone. But those protections exist precisely because we don't believe they should be able to do it randomly or routinely. So it, it, it isn't the case that your communications are absolutely protected, and maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe there are some cases where the authorities should be able to get in. And I can understand that, but this, this bill has no protection of that sort for anybody. The other thing is that you can listen to one person's telephone call um, without making without doing a dramatic change to the telephone system. But if you listen to one person's WhatsApp or read in to one person's WhatsApp communication, you can only do it by creating a door in the end-to-end -end encryption system, which then can be copied by anybody else. So it's, it's more complicated than simply saying, oh, we'll give them a warrant right. to let them look at WhatsApp because the system is designed so that nobody knows what's happening on WhatsApp, including WhatsApp. That's their claim, that they don't know what the message is. And, and even to let one policeman look once, to monitor once, would require you to build a back door in the system, which then anybody could replicate. Do you think people, and there's 40 million users um, 40 million users of these systems in the UK. Do you think those people understand how close they are to losing uh, what's happened to go? No, I think that there's been um, 
uh, a remarkable lack of interest in the bill on the part of the public. Um, I've had lots and lots of emails from people, especially with some sort of connection to the tech community, who are anxious about the bill and who are uh, particularly uh, campaigning on the end-to-end -end encryption. But there's a hell of a lot more in the bill that they should be worried about. And, um, and, um, and so those are, that, that's where the public campaign has been about end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, but even that doesn't seem to have made a huge difference. And, um, uh, and as I say, there are many other things in the bill uh, which are just as bad, and there's no public campaign about them. Why is that? I don't know. I mean, there's been a good public campaign in favor of the bill, and organizations like the NSPCC and others have campaigned uh, vigorously in favor of the bill and in a way which is, I mean, quite what I would call quite sophisticated marketing um, that is reasonably persuasive. And as I say, to some extent, they're always pushing at an open door because the moment you say children should not be exposed to material that encourages them to commit suicide, everyone's going to agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, it's this response, this particular bill and the way of going about it, which has become a monster. I mean, uh, if someone sitting at home watching this may feel, I don't really mind, the, uh, anyone can read my messages, I don't have anything to hide, and quite happily give up that freedom. What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, well, there are always people who take the view that, um, that civil liberties are of no great significance to people who conduct their lives innocently and harmlessly. That, that the great beneficiaries are people who are doing things that are wrong. And I profoundly disagree with that view because I think it's the people who, who are leaving their lives innocently and harmlessly who in a sense have the greatest entitlement to privacy and freedom to conduct their lives um, much greater than people who are doing um, a lot of harm. Um, so I think the argument that, oh, you know, if nobody does anything wrong, why should they worry about it, is completely topsy-turvy. They, they are the people who should be defending their liberties more than anybody else, because they'll soon go. So the question that, rhetorically, that you throw back at people like that is, well, would you object to having somebody listening into your phone calls? And one of the problems is nobody makes phone calls nowadays because everybody's on WhatsApp. I mean, how often do you get a phone call when the phone actually rings? But you see what I mean. Mm. But do, do, would you mind people routinely listening to your phone calls? Uh, would you mind people routinely having cameras in your house uh, to be able to monitor what you're doing? And there will be people who say, no, I, I don't mind, nothing, nothing ever goes on in my house that I'd be ashamed of. And that's fine if that's your view. That's, that's, I, I can't disagree with you. But I think there comes a point where the majority of people would draw a line and they'd say, no, there's a private space for me. So it becomes a definition. And of course, you are entitled. I don't like bringing it into play particularly. But 
the European Convention on Human Rights has introduced into English law a novel concept of a right to privacy, which previously didn't, we didn't have. But we now do have this sense of a right of privacy in, in our legal system that didn't exist before. So, but most people instinctively feel that there is a private sphere, and all we're arguing about is, how big is it? You know, does it affect it? Certainly, most people would say, well, they, they can't have cameras in the bedroom. They can't have cameras in the bathroom. Um, unless it's goggle box, they can't have cameras in the sitting room, okay? Um, and, uh, and no, I don't want my telephone calls being monitored and listened into randomly without any warrant or excuse. Um, but maybe uh, encryption on WhatsApp, I could live with that. Other people would say, no, 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 I want to have secure messages as well. That's an argument that people can have, and people will have different views. But I think the idea that anyone would say, no, 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 there's no right, there's no private space if you're an innocent, open, honest, harmless person. I think the number of people in that, at that end of the spectrum would be very small when they thought about it. Most people wouldn't agree with that. If we do go ahead with this bill and the UK becomes the first liberal democracy to routinely scan people's messages, what effect do you think this would have on authoritarian nations who are looking on at us? Well, that's a very interesting question. First of all, I don't overestimate Britain's moral influence. The idea that there's some bad dictator out there who is holding himself back from doing something bad because he's waiting to see if Britain does it first. Um, it seems to me slightly fanciful. Um, if they're going to do something bad, they're almost going to do something certain to do some, the bad thing without waiting to find out you know, what the House of Lords thinks about it. I mean, let's, let's not overestimate Britain as a, a moral pillar. It's very easy to do that. Um, the, the stance taken by people like WhatsApp's to, WhatsApp and iMessage to date has been they will do everything in their power to resist um, doing anything that compromises end-to-end -end encryption. So if some ghastly dictator in some nameless state said, I'm going to break encryption on WhatsApp, um, they wouldn't agree to that. They, he'd have to find a way himself, technologically, of doing it. And then they, in my view, at the moment, would say, well, we're withdrawing the service. You just won't have the service. They will have got, they'll have got out. So I don't think that, and I think that's what they'll do in Britain as well. You see, the thing is that the way Britain is thinking, it seems to me the way the regulator is thinking, is that um, we're, we're so important, Britain, as a market, that none of these companies will ever withdraw from operating here. But I think there are some things, and I mean this from a commercial point of view, not just from a moral point of view. I think the end-to-end -end encryption shtick is so valuable to some of these companies like WhatsApp and Signal that they would feel they would lose more business in the rest of the world if they gave in to Britain. So they'd, you know, from a purely commercial point of view, they'd probably leave Britain 
to protect their, the rest of their worldwide business and show others that they were absolutely serious about what is a large, uh, major, sophisticated market. So I think that um, uh, people are wrong to think that they would just collapse and give way. I'm not that worried about Britain's moral example to the, the bad men who are out there. But I do think China is interesting because China has put lots of this sort of stuff in place already. And um, Lord Vesey, when I tried to compare us to China, uh, tried to poo-poo it um, and say, oh, don't be silly, every country, don't keep talking about China. China regulates the internet. Every country will be regulating the internet. It's just a question of how we do it. Nothing special to see here. But actually what China has attempted is to create a firewall around its internet so that it's an enclosed thing. It isn't really an international thing. It's a Chinese internet. And that gives you lots of censorship opportunities. And we're in danger of ending up in a little enclosed island um, internet here, cut off from the rest of the world. A more interesting question, if I may say so, than how, and I don't know the answer, um, than how it will affect dictators overseas is how it will affect Britain's reputation, which the Prime Minister is so keen on, as a, um, a hotbed of technological innovation mm. and what it says to the tech community here about you know, what they're in, investing in and what they're working in and where their careers are. Um, is this the right country in which to carry on um, develop? Because we are a, a huge attractor of tech investment. But we know it's very mobile. We know a lot of the people who are doing tech and a lot of the investment attracted into tech um, in London in the last couple of years is because people are leaving California. And they've moved here. And it's quite mobile. And they could decide um, at some point, well, we'll leave London. Most of them don't need to have a fixed workplace. Um, many of them, at least, don't need to have a fixed workplace. They can be on a beach working. It's going back to what you were saying um, with the regulator. It's quite an interesting point, the fact that you know, decisions should be made by the government. <coughs> we, we voted for the government, that's who we want to lead us. But more and more things are being passed to these yes. regulatory bodies. Ofcom's becoming an uber regulator, if you like. Ofcom is going to be the, the granddaddy, the queen, the kick-ass queen of regulators. Mm. What are, the, what are the dangers of, of taking that approach? Well, the dangers are the lack of complete lack of accountability. We, we know that. And, and general, there are two dangers. The first is lack of accountability. But the second is operational effectiveness. In other words, is the regulator any good? Um, a lot of people have reached the conclusion that the Financial Conduct Authority isn't very much, isn't very good. Part of the reason for that is it regulates banks, but it finds it difficult to pay the salaries that can out help outwit the banks, get the people who can outwit the banks, if you see what I mean. So the FCA has become, I think, a pretty hopeless regulator, and it isn't very good. But another body, it's not strictly a regulator, it, is, it does also regulate banks, but another body, Gordon Brown, on his first day in office as Chancellor, practically, um, gave operational um, control of interest rates to the Bank of England with a mandate to use them so as to control inflation. 
And so those decisions about interest rates and the control of inflation used to be taken by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who at least is accountable. Um, then it was passed to the Bank of England. Well, the way in which the Bank of England does this is called monetary policy. Well, Bank of England monetary policy since around about 2008 has been a complete disaster. And interest rates have been far too low. Um, government expenditure was accommodated through printing large amounts of money during the COVID crisis. And now, perfectly predictably, we have a large amount of inflation, which the bank said wasn't going to happen. This wasn't going to happen. It was just trans And if it did happen, it was transient. It was just, it would be a bump and the system would just vanish. Now, the, this, is, this is completely incompetent decision-making in yet another of these independent bodies which is unaccountable to the ordinary voter and makes decisions which affect all of our lives, but nobody has any purchase on them. Off what does the water? Off what has to make decisions about what water companies invest in and how much they invest. And you might say, well, off-watch should be in forcing them to invest in. You don't have to force water companies to invest, by the way, because they get a reward for it. Right. Uh, but off-watch should be authorizing them to invest in lots of stuff so we don't have to worry about leaky pipes, but also we don't have to worry about sewage, overspills. Also, we have enough water in the reservoirs. We haven't built a reservoir for decades. Um, and we have enough water in the reservoir so we don't run dry and things of that sort. That's what off-watch should be doing. But off what is saying at the same time, yeah, I can do that, but you know the cost of that goes on your bill. So there's a trade-off here. I'm under pressure. What do we want to achieve over time in terms of infrastructure and how much <coughs> excuse me, can the customer afford and can be stuffed on their bills? Fine. And those are quite interesting decisions, and you could say off what gets right or wrong. But my point is it's done totally unaccountably. There's nobody in the public being asked about this. Nobody sees these decisions being made. Nobody sees the trade-offs that are happening. Nobody is holding off what to account for its basic economic regulatory function. Um, uh, it, 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 the, the public are cut out of it completely. So how do we solve this problem? Well, we need to get back to the the notion of the non-regulated state, the state that lives under law. Um, we need to have um, uh, 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 less of an ambition that the state should be able to control in detail, you know, a lot of things that are happening. Uh, we need to ask seriously about privatization because uh, when you take an off-what, the reason off-what exists is when the water companies privatized, and this was true to some extent of the railway companies, because they are um, uh, local monopolies, you couldn't just say, well, charge whatever you want, because they could charge whatever they wanted, <laughs> and they could screw everyone. So there had to be some what is called economic, this is economic regulation. This is separate from things like safety regulation and things like that, which also exists. But economic regulation, which is how much can you spend what do you earn on it, and are you spending it efficiently? And that's what an economic regulator does, and they set the charges that are meant to drive, that you can charge customers, that are meant to drive all that. 
Same with Heathrow, for example. Heathrow is subject to economic regulation because it's considered to have a monopoly characteristic. Most airports aren't, but Heathrow is. Gatwick a little bit, Stansted a little bit, but Heathrow gets the full Monty. And so what Heathrow can charge customers, or rather what they charge, they charge the airlines. But for every, every time you fly in and out of Heathrow, of course, part of your ticket is being paid to Heathrow. What they're allowed to charge is set by a regulator, um, the Civil Aviation Authority in their case. So that's why this economic regulation system was set up. But there really has to be a question of whether it has, whether the privatization has driven the efficiencies that people wanted and expected. And um, because it, it wasn't privatized for ideological reasons. It was privatized to get a job done. And uh, in many ways, although people knock the water companies, they have spent a lot of money over the last 20-odd, well, when was privatization? Mid-80s? Mid mm. um, late, late 80s? About 1990, roughly. So the last 30 years. They have spent um, an awful lot of money. But there's been no public debate about whether they've done it, whether this is what we wanted the money spent on, what the priorities were. Do you think we'll see more of a, a public appetite for cutting down some of these regulators, especially as costs keep going up? Well, it depends. As I say, some of the regulators exist because of privatization. So if you had a Labour government that said, we're going to reverse a lot of privatizations, then you wouldn't need a regulator. Uh, you'd just trust the government. Now, I don't trust the government to run the railways particularly efficiently. Um, but most of all, I don't trust the government to have enough money to invest. The, 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 the value of privatization is that these companies then went out and borrowed money on their own balance sheet to invest. And that's what allowed investment over a period, because they knew they could earn a return on it through the regulatory system. Um, the, the, the lesson of public ownership is that there's never money for investment. The government never has money for investment. Um, well, you could say that's wrong, look at HS2. But with some exceptions, the government, the government finds it easier to have money to invest in something new. Right. It's very difficult, right down the bottom of the pecking order, to find money to invest in something which already exists, but which needs investment, that you could really, that needs proper maintenance and investment and upgrade and so on, because it's not thought of as new and sexy and so on. You know, if I used to be deputy chairman of Transport for London when Boris was mayor, and I can tell you, if you if you invested in the upgrade, we've up, a number of tube lines have been upgraded to modern standards. And if you go on the Victoria line and you see the trains coming in practically every minute, one, one's in before the other's left and so on. And that, is, that has the result of investment. But if you then go to the Piccadilly line, where the driver is manually driving the train and it comes in slowly and they have to have large distances between them because the computers are cleverer at driving the trains close to each other than a human driver can be trusted to be. They're actually safer running it with computer than having a human driver. So you can run them closer together. You don't see that on the Piccadilly line. And the train comes in fairly slowly into the platform because the driver has to, because every train has to stop at exactly the right point with the door and the driver's door in the right place. 
Of course, the, the human driver tends to slow down as he comes in to do that. So it's very skillful, and they've got a lot of practice doing it. And, and you know, 99 times out of 100, he lands in exactly the right place. But the computer lands in the right place 100 times out of 100 and slams into the station at great speed and slams out again and so on. But the Piccadilly line, you would invest money in it. You, you could have a 60% increase in capacity on the Piccadilly line if you upgraded, if you did to the Piccadilly line what you've done to the Victoria line, the Jubilee line, and so on. Um, and it's a major line, but nobody has any money for it. But they'd rather talk about, let's build a Crossrail 2 or a, a, a Bakerloo line extension, which is sort of new and shiny, you know. Yeah. But, but investing in the Piccadilly line would make huge difference. We also had the Elizabeth line recently, didn't we? It's the yes. shiniest one. Yes, we have. So the new can attract investment. The existing is just, oh, well, what do you mean? You just want a new new train set or whatever? Yeah, I'd like a new train set. They're getting new trains, actually, to be fair. Um, I'd like a new train set, but I'd also like um, the signaling done, which is the com basically the computer that drives it, which means I need a lot of track work done. It also means with more trains going faster, I need a power upgrade, because I need more electricity to run it. Put all that package together, takes a few years. What would be the cost? Maybe a billion pounds. Upgrade it, 60% increase in capacity. Train slamming every minute, you know, every minute through um, the stations. Transformative for, for one of the major lines that runs east-west across London. Lord Moylan, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much.